Holy Father, we thank you that your word is truth. And Lord Jesus, you told us that we are to be set apart, sanctified in your truth. We are grateful for the Holy Spirit who gave us this book we call the Bible. Thank you for its infallibility, for its inerrancy. And we thank you that you use it to reshape the way we think, to bring our thinking in conformity with what you've revealed in Holy Scripture. So we pray tonight, whether we are learning this for the first time or whether we are being equipped to help others, our children, our grandchildren, others that we might disciple or mentor, that you would help us tonight to have a clear, quick, sharp grasp on what you have given us here. And I ask for your help now as I share and open my heart in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you can see, we are moving into a new section. This is entitled Section 4, Debt-Free Living. And so if you will turn to page 81 where we are at this evening, uh, we are dealing with principle number four, and it's called the Christian as no man's debtor, the Christian as no man's debtor. By the end of this session, you will be able to hopefully know God's basic plan and relationship to debt, secondly, understand the reasons we get into debt, third, understand five negative consequences of debt, understand what it means to live beyond your God-given means, understand when debt is sin and when using debt is not sinful, know how to scripturally answer the most commonly asked questions about debt, and then develop a plan for getting out of debt if you are in debt and staying out of debt, all right? So by way of introduction, the Bible is far from silent on the subject of debt and on the topic of borrowing and lending money. We would do well to open our hearts and minds and listen to what God has to say. Any previous beliefs on this subject must be run through the grid of Scripture. That's our authority, right? We need to be willing to lay aside our opinions unless they match up with Scripture. So let's begin with just some facts to ponder about both national and personal debt. Uh, to lend some perspective to the national debt problem, let's start there. Consider that it took our nation 233 years to reach $10 trillion in national debt from 1776 to 2009. And today, July the 10th, as of a few hours ago, it's gone up already millions, actually billions, since I recorded this earlier today. The current debt is $22,482,950,218,000 86 cents. And if you click on the national debt clock, it just never stops moving. Yesterday, in fact, the government came out and said that we are spending 25% higher in terms of deficit spending in the new administration. Now, whether you're for or against Trump has little to do with this. It has to do with those congressmen who basically work our budget. And we spend a lot of money as a nation, and it has to get out of in control. And of course, this was the American Enterprise Institute giving an analysis, which is a relatively credible organization, and the dangers that they believe we are headed on. On a proportional basis, the national debt is expanding 36% faster than the entire U.S. economy, even if you include inflation. According to the Congressional Budget Office, within a decade, even if interest rates remain near constant, 
Some $900 billion in interest payments will be due annually. And this year alone, we are on track to spend $389 billion in interest. Those are big numbers. We need to let those reverberate and think about those. According to the Governmental Accounting Office, this $22 trillion national debt excludes money borrowed from the Social Security Trust Fund that is earmarked to pay Social Security recipients. So when they take money out of your check, I said this in the opening session, it doesn't go into this bank account where they're, you know, collecting interest. They're spending it as fast as it goes in there. None of it is earmarked except on an annual basis. Sadly, Congress must now borrow to meet these obligations since monthly expenses now exceed monthly revenues collected in the Social Security Department, Medicare, Medicaid. As the government devotes more of its revenues to pay the mandatory costs of Social Security, it will have less money on hand to stimulate the economy, which will only further slow growth and deepen the national debt. We were, as I think most of you know, even if you have had a course of macroeconomics, you're aware of the fact that our government was able to do some things, uh, that those resources are virtually gone. You can't keep lowering the interest rates when they're already at the bottom. We printed hundreds of billions of dollars in the QE program to stimulate the economy. We can't do that much longer. A lot of the little props that we had to pull out of the next recession are fast evaporating. Number six, while the Congress realizes it is facing a debt crisis, few are willing to take corrective steps in the immediate future to correct the problem, such that in the near to distant future, they will be forced to either raise taxes or to cut benefits. That's all they have left. Over the long term, a growing federal debt is like driving with the emergency brake on because as the debt-to-GDP ratio increases, and if you're not sure what that refers to, go back to session one, debt holders will most likely demand larger interest payments for the increased risk they will not be paid. As our need to service the national debt increases, the economy will only be slowed because the U.S. will be forced to pay exorbitant amounts just to service the debt. At the rate the government is borrowing, if they never pay down the principal, and if they continue to borrow money to pay just interest, as our government must now do, eventually it becomes mathematically impossible to pay off the debt. That's not me speaking. That's a report I read by the Government Accounting Office. And again, the government just came out a few days ago saying that we've collected record amounts of revenue, but not only are we spending those record amounts of revenue, we're spending 35% higher, going 35% deeper into debt and quicker into debt than we were two years ago. The day will come when our nation and several others, because obviously the nations are welded together, will no longer be able to continue borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today. And when that happens, our nation, probably along with many others, will have an economic collapse. That's the eventual end. Not a recession, not a depression, but a collapse. And we'll define that as we move through this section on debt. For decades, many have warned us that we will pay a steep price for these massive debts. Yet, so far, we have not but that does not mean that we never will. Unless our government changes its course of action, as the Bible warns, if a person or a government guarantees a debt, 
that they cannot pay, as Solomon wisely said in Proverbs 22, even your bed will be snatched from under you. Unless the leaders in our nation take some radical steps to rescue the economy, it is not a matter of if this debt crisis will erupt. It is only a matter of when. No one knows for sure what the trigger will be to set off the ticking financial time bomb. But we can say with certainty that there is one future event that is certain to unleash a global debt crisis, and that event will be the rapture. Think your way through that for a moment. If even 10% of the 2.5 billion people who self-identify as Christians are really born again, then that suddenly means 220 million workers will be gone. 220 million people suddenly will be gone. Now imagine 220 million consumers, workers, and investors suddenly gone with many of them leaving mortgages behind that will go unpaid, not to mention the many who would suddenly disappear from key leadership portions around the world. I was in a meeting in Washington over the weekend. I heard the vice president, a number of different politicians, and as I thought, man, there's a lot of born-again people in our leadership, the people, many who spoke on the platform. And all, think about that, all these key critical leaders are suddenly gone. If a financial meltdown does not happen before the rapture, it certainly will after, helping to usher in a one-world economy of the Antichrist. We know that will come because the Bible teaches it will come. We've studied it in Revelation 13, 17. It is possible that today's massive debt burden may well erupt into the crisis the Antichrist uses to seize control, and the rapture may well be the event that starts it all, but we do not know, and we still need to obey God's ways. Whatever happens, it doesn't change what God has called us to do as His people. The economy right now may seem good to many, but it is only a false veneer, not to mention we have not considered the huge debts that state and local governments have. Now, we're better off in South Carolina. We're only $15 billion in debt. California is $1 trillion in debt. And by the way, unless South Carolina gets a handle on their debt, many of our civil workers and those who are going to retire from a number of different civil positions will not have their pensions. And we are better than a lot of states. Beyond the rise of national and state debts, there is also rising personal debt that one recent study discovered that 40% of Americans are now unable to handle an unexpected $400 expense, with many of us living from paycheck to paycheck. While mortgage debt has dropped since the Great Recession, largely due to the devaluation of property, non-mortgage debt is now higher than in 2007. I think that's significant. To stimulate the economy, the government has habitually lowered interest rates, which has led many Americans to borrow even more, while at the same time inflating costs in certain sectors of the economy. For example, according to Experian, credit card debt now exceeds $1.03 trillion, the highest it has ever been since 2008. 
with an average debt of $8,640 on credit cards per household, with 71% of Americans carrying a monthly revolving balance. By the way, if you're there on credit card debt, and I know there are many, we're going to help you how to get out of that debt. That is like a strangler. And we're going to show you how to get out of that debt and steps and sacrifices that you'll need to take and why it will be really motivating for you to do that. Student loan debt is now the second highest in the household debt category behind only mortgage debt, totaling $1.56 trillion with the average student owing $28,650. That is a crisis waiting to break. And of course, what's sad is with the FAFSA program, when the government kicked that in, if you have students college age, you know, there's a form they fill out whether they need money or not. And they go through that process. And basically, the government is giving students what they want. And so if I know if I want $30,000 to go to college and the government will give it to me, and I'm a university president, and I know that I'm going to have students who are going to get the money that they need, that's going to inflate educational costs. And that, of course, is what's been happening. When I sent my first son to USC and my last son, and to look at the difference between just that one school, it's, it's incredible. Um, where are we? 25, thank you. As of February 2019, Americans now have car loans totaling $1.129 trillion with an average new car loan of $31,000 and some change and $21,000 and some change for a used car, with a record 7 million people 90 or more days behind on their auto loan payments, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. That's a crisis waiting to happen. But again, if you stay through this section of the course on debt, I'll show you how to buy a car debt-free. And you need to teach your kids how to buy a car debt-free. You say, you have to have a lot of money to do that. No, you have to have a lot more money to borrow to, 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 to take a loan. The solution to both our governments and our own personal financial problems are very simple. We need to just stop spending money that we do not have. It's not rocket science. God promises that one cannot habitually spend money that has not yet been earned, because if you guarantee a debt you cannot pay, Again, even your bed will be snatched from underneath you. Number 28, our debt will somehow or another be paid either through massive tax increases or through an invisible tax called inflation, which devalues the money you have. And of course, that's what happened in the 30s, a famous picture of the man with a wheelbarrow full of cash in Germany only able to buy a loaf of bread with it. And that's happening right now in a number of countries in the world. This section on debt is vital so that as God's people, we might be prepared not simply in caring for our own families, but in ministry to lost people of this world. In the same way that God used Joseph as recorded in Genesis chapter 41. If you remember, Joseph arose to the position of prime minister and he was used of God through the seven years of plenty that came to the land of Egypt to sustain that nation and others around it through the seven years of famine that followed. We may be in an elusive time of seven years of plenty. Uh, that's obviously just a number I pulled out of the air, but it's, I'm using it in an idiomatic way. But if our government 
or we as Christians do not make the necessary mid-course corrections, then we will suffer more than we will be able to help when these difficult times come. The financial problems facing our country and now our world through the global economy are so large, I do not think it is a matter of if this debt crisis will erupt, but only a matter of when this ticking financial time bomb will explode. No one, it seems, has the brass to deal with this problem. And everyone kicks it down the road. Even when George W. Bush was president of the United States, his plan was to go to 41 different states to argue with uh, local governments, governors, do rallies and so forth to tell people that we were headed for a social security crisis in 25 years. But no one listened to him. And halfway through the tour, he just, he gave up, he canceled because no one really cared. And most people, unfortunately, most politicians really don't care. They care more about their worldview and their being reelected by giving people stuff that we have to borrow money to pay for than they do really, I think, in preserving our country. But that's what happens when a nation abandons God and abandons His principles. But, when, but like the sons of Issachar, you can read of them in First Chronicles, who were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, we too, like the sons of Issachar, we need to prepare. A sensible man, writes Proverbs 27, 12, a sensible man watches for problems ahead and prepares to meet them. The simpleton never looks and suffers the consequences. All right. Motivation. <laughs> Trying to give you some Motivation. Because I, I really think that God's people should be different. That we should have a testimony that is different from the lost people of this world. So let's start Roman number one, God's basic plan in relationship to debt. What is God's basic plan in relationship to debt? Point A, those who obey God's commandments will be lenders. That's what the Word of God reveals. Those who obey His commands will be lenders. Deuteronomy chapter 28 opens with a challenge from God to Israel. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey Yahweh, the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The word if, it's a conditional promise, looms large in this verse as Moses exhorts the nation of Israel with a choice that expresses a conditional promise from God. It's a conditional promise that God gives, and it has not exhausted itself in terms of principle and application for all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable. Three, there were three major features to the Mosaic Covenant that God made with the people of Israel. The law, the sacrifice, and the choice. The law, the sacrifice, and the choice. Just read 28 through 30. The, of Deuteronomy. The idea behind the choice is that God was determined to reveal Himself to the world through Israel, either by their obedience or by their disobedience. One way or another, the world would know that they were His people. God would do this either by making them so blessed 
though the world would know only God could have blessed them so, or by making them so cursed, that only God could have cursed them and caused them to still survive. By the way, if you haven't read those three chapters recently, it might be really edifying to read those before you go to bed tonight. The choice was up to Israel, and one aspect of the blessings of the covenant would be seen in the Lord's financial blessings. Let me read verses 12 through 14 a little bit later in that chapter. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you will only be above and you will not be underneath if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command, command you today to the right or to the left to go after the go- other gods to serve them. That's the temptation when you go after other gods and serve them, you lose God's perspective. And that's really where we are. Now, we may not define gods the way you think some pagan cultures do, though approximately one-third of the world has hardcore raw idolatry where they worship at a statue or a tree or an animal or whatever it may be. One-third of the planet. But lay that aside, we have our own gods in America. And idolatry is anything that you place above God. That's why the Bible says in Colossians that sexual immorality and greed are defined even as idolatry. Number seven, Israel would have financial prosperity, causing them to be above other nations where they would lend to them as the head and leader and not have to borrow from them as the tail or, the fo- or their follower. All right, B, those who disobey God's commandments will become borrowers. Those who obey will be lenders. Those who disobey will be borrowers. Like the blessings for an obedient Israel, the curses for a disobedient Israel would be inevitable. Listen again to what God says in Deuteronomy 28, 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. All these curses are spelled out in the rest of the chapter, verses 16 through 69. All these curses spelled out in the rest of the chapter are overwhelming, leaving them with a vivid warning of disobedience. Of course, many of these horrible curses upon a disobedient Israel were fulfilled in the years of history recorded in the Old Testament right until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., killing over one million people. There's a horrible, horrible siege that came upon Israel there on top of Mount Scopus with 65,000 troops. Titus Vespucian basically waited and starved out the people. And many people out of hunger would climb over the wall of the old city and they would soon be captured and crucified. They crucified over 100,000 Jewish people. So many people, they ran out of trees, according to Josephus. Of course, um, and I'm, I'm number four, by contrast, in 70 AD, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem 
heeded the words of Jesus in Luke 21, 20 through 24. If you know that passage, Jesus prophesied not just of the end of time, but like any true prophet, because Jesus filled three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And of course, the mark of a true prophet, and Christ didn't exclude himself, though he could have certainly as God in human flesh, he met the qualifications for a true prophet and that you not only gave long-range but short-range prophecies. There's a short-range one, and Jesus said, when you see the troops all around the city of Jerusalem, if you're smart, you'll get out of Dodge. That's what the Jewish believers did who were there. They heeded the words of Jesus in Luke 21, 20 to 24, in which he told people to flee Jerusalem when it was surrounded by armies because of the days of vengeance that were at hand. One aspect, one aspect of the curses listed in this chapter are financial in nature. There's a lot, but one major one is financial. Let me read what he says, Moses in verses 43 and 44. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you will be the tail. Of course, during the plagues that came at the Exodus, the Lord made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites by protecting the Israelites from the disasters that fell on Egypt. If you're in the land of Goshen, you're in a good place. If you're outside, you're in a bad place. All the way through the Passover that night. But here God says the reverse would be true, for the alien would profit at Israel's expense, becoming the leader or the head. The purpose of this curse, like all the curses, was educational, serving as a warning of God's miraculous intervention and judgment, not simply to teach Moses' generation, but future generations of Israelites. Point C the principle that God established concerning debt. Number one, those who obey will be lenders. B, those who disobey will borrowers. Now, the overall principle established concerning debt. If the nation Israel was obedient to God's laws, then God would bless. That's what He promises. God would bless. As a result of His blessings, they would be lenders and not borrowers. Lenders and not borrowers. Borrowing was associated with disobedience, while lending was associated with the Lord's blessings. While God certainly had a unique relationship with Israel in His theocracy, from these verses we can also conclude that all debt is not prohibitive. God never teaches untruths in His Word. Everything he teaches is true. Now, sometimes at different points in history, it has a different application. Some promises are pointed to a particular people. This was a theocracy. But the principle stands. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it will instruct us. It will reprove us. It will equip us for every good work that God would have us to walk in. If God allowed, number five, the children of Israel to be lenders through their obedience, He was not going to to leave them to do something that was sinful, right? If God said, look, if I bless you, I'll make you a lender, then that would automatically imply that lending was not necessarily sinful. And if some lending is permissible, one must also conclude that some borrowing is permissible as well. 
So when someone says all debt is sinful, they're not reading their Bible very carefully. D, some will have to borrow out of necessity. Some borrow out of necessity. And so Moses deals with this earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. All right? Page 87. In God's saying to lend to those in need, He is informing us that neither lending nor borrowing are potentially morally wrong. And I say potentially because, as we'll see, some lending is wrong and some borrowing is wrong, and we need to be able to sort that out in our theology of money. God's original purpose was to help lift a burden off a brother in need. And so the remission of debts and the seventh year just mentioned was never to be used to discourage giving to those needing help. If you're familiar with on the seventh year, God canceled all debts in Israel. So, you know, if someone comes to you in year six and says, I need to borrow some money, you know, in year seven, it's totally wiped out. Hmm. What should I do? So God didn't say this to discourage being kind, but he also spoke a lot about being responsible. And that's why in this culture, you had had indentured servants. It's not like the African slavery we had in early America where people were kidnapped and sold as property. But it was a kind of, look, I'm broke. My family's starving. Can I come and be your indentured servant? Yes, you can, and I'll take care of your needs. Now, that was one form of indentured servanthood that the Bible speaks of. There's others. But God's original purpose, again, was to lift a burden off a brother in need. Um, and again, it was not used to discourage helping those. Number four, the Lord gives this exhortation because he knew that this law might discourage lending to the poor. And he wanted his people to be generous. The emphasis in verse 7 is to one of your brothers. Just like the Apostle Paul reminds us of the same emphasis in Galatians 6.10. You know that verse. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Helping those in need is to begin with brothers and sisters closest to us, though it certainly can extend outwardly as Christ taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know that parable, right? Turn there for a second. It's not in your notes, but maybe we should pause for a second. Go there, Luke chapter 10. Run down a rabbit trail for a moment. If you remember, um, Jesus is addressing a lawyer. And a lawyer, of course, in biblical times is not like someone today who represents you in a court of law. Uh, The word lawyer and scribe is used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe the same office. 
These were people who not only copied the Scriptures, but God strategically put out in the community across the nation of Israel to teach the Scriptures to God's people. And we read in verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. That's his motivation. Saying, teacher, rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, and well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he bleeds together the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, Deuteronomy 6, and Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. <laughs> Sounds like salvation by works, doesn't it? You do this and you'll live. I would say that to anyone. You do this. Love God all the time perfectly with your whole heart, mind, and strength, and always love your neighbor, and you'll have eternal life. Jesus was using the law to reveal the man's need. And of course, wishing to justify himself, he said, Who is my neighbor? Now, he quoted, go back to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, right after Exodus, Leviticus. It's in the Torah, the first five books. Go to Leviticus 19 and verse uh, 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, from this verse alone, who do you suspect the neighbor would be? The sons of your people, a fellow Jew. Okay, I can love my fellow Jew, someone might reason. But you go down the street a little bit, look down at... Um, Verse 34, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here's this guy, who's my neighbor? And Jesus really brings him, puts him on the mat. And of course, you know the parable. Some would say it's not a parable. In either case, it says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Down and up in the Bible is not north and south like in the United States, but it's in deference to altitude. You're going up, you're going up in altitude. Here is uh, Jerusalem, it's to Jericho, it's a change of about 3,000 feet. You're going down. And it's a narrow, weaving road. 18 miles long, 15 miles as the crow flies, and a lot of good places to jump on people. In either case, I've often wanted just to walk that road. I thought that would be a fun walk, that 18-mile walk. But I don't think I'd get anyone to go with me on the bus. <laughs> That's a long walk. It would be long for me. It would be long for all of us, wouldn't it? Especially in Israel where it's so hot. Uh, he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he, he passed by on the other side. So he's a priest. That means he was in Jerusalem. He'd been serving in the temple. They had a rotation of priests. There were thousands of them. To be a priest, you had to be a Levite, but not just a Levite. You had to be of the house of Aaron, 
descendant of Aaron. And so here's this guy leaving church, so to speak, put it in modern terms. You know, we've just had a great service at Community Bible Church. You're all excited. You're all built up. You see some guy in need, and you just kind of walk by him. That just really shows how distant this man's heart was. He's half dead. He's not dead. It's apparent that he's still alive. So it's not like, well, if I touch this guy, I'm going to be unclean. I've heard more nonsense on that by pastors. Oh, he'll be unclean. I touch him. He's a dead man. He's half dead. He's not dead. He's still alive. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road. He saw him pass by. Likewise, a Levite. So all priests are Levites. Not all Levites are priests. Again, you had to be of the family of Aaron. But Levites played a critical role. They, they, were, uh, they couldn't own land to anybody who was a Levite from the tribe of Levi. But they were strategically placed in, I think, what, 48 cities across Israel in which to teach and instruct the people. What does he do? He does the same thing, passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. By the way, the text never says the man was a Jew that the Samaritan cared for. Again, I've heard more nonsense on that. It's not in the text. That's reading into the text. That's eisegesis. It was just a man in need. The Lord could have made him a Jew if he wanted to, but he didn't. But I think what he is really heralding here is the fact that it was a Samaritan whom they despised and thought were scum and irreligious and worthless in terms of their relationship with God, but it's the Samaritan who cares for his neighbor. And so he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. The wine would have killed the bacteria. There's two ingredients in wine that when it's fermented, it kills germs and the oil would soothe and also keep out parasites and germs, kind of like an inside Band-Aid, and then you have the outside bandage on top of that. And he put on his own beast. That meant he was walking and this guy was riding. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay. So he dropped him off at the end, spent the night, cared for him, paid for his stay. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said rightly, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then you go and you do the same. So back here to the handout. Number six, helping those in need to begin with those brothers and sisters closing to us, but it certainly can extend outwardly as Christ taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. Deuteronomy 15.11 clearly teaches that the poor and the needy will never cease to be in the land. We just read that. They'll always be among us. Jesus reconfirmed this same truth in Matthew 26.11, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By the way, Jesus did not say this to dissuade generosity and kind treatment of the poor. Oh, you know, we'll always have the poor. There's nothing we can do about it. That's not what he's saying, obviously. Because he just encouraged kindness to those in need. In Matthew 25, 31 to 36, he told that parable of how people will treat the least of these my brethren, being Jews during the tribulation period. 
Now we take that, oh, I got to have a prison ministry because if I don't visit you in prison and clothe you when you're naked, he's talking about how people, the nations of the world treated Jews during the tribulation period. That's not to say that God might not lead you to a prison ministry or care for other needs. But his point was, is that kindness is to be part of the DNA of God's people, no matter who it is that we're trying to minister to. So number two, let's ask some most commonly ask and answer the most commonly asked questions about debt. Most commonly asked questions about debt. First, when is a person in debt? A person is in debt when he is unable to meet, unable to meet an agreed upon obligation. Then you're in debt. Credit is usually defined as owing someone money that is due in less than 45 days. That's the general definition. That was the general definition when I was studied. I went through the CPA program and the School of Management at Boston College. Hadn't changed in 50 years. You use credit when you have an electric meter at your home, a service contract for a telephone, or when you rent a car using a credit card. That's credit. When a person buys something on credit that is not necessarily a debt, but rather a contractual agreement. So that's not necessarily debt. It's just a contractual agreement. Yeah, I'm going to hook up to South Carolina Electric and Gas or whatever they're called now, and, and um, you know, I promise to pay my bill at the end of the month. But when the terms of that contract are violated, scriptural debt then incurs. Scriptural, biblical, small letter, scripture, Bible, capital letter. It's always done incorrectly, but that's correct, believe it or not. One will often go into debt because he is not willing to wait on God to provide his needs within his means to pay. We want it now, so I'm going to go into debt. Sometimes there can be a fine line between borrowing and debt. There can be a fine line between borrowing and debt. I'm not your judge, but I will try to give you the principles so that you can discern. Prayerfully consider the wisdom of Solomon and ask God what he would have you do in your situation. Remember, Solomon said the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Unfortunately, many of God's people go into debt in order to appear wealthier than they are because they are not satisfied with what God has given them. When I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, um, I worked with CEOs of major corporations. I had in my Bible study the CEO of Wyndham Hotels, the CEO of the 7-Eleven Corporation. All these guys, they, they were making incomes in the millions of dollars a year. What I found so interesting when I taught this course in a very abbreviated form back then, it didn't matter if you made $3 million a year or you made $30,000 a year, people typically had the same financial problems. They just lived on a higher elevated lifestyle, and they borrowed more money. And sometimes it's because people want to appear wealthier than they really are, and they're not satisfied with what God... If God has given you $50,000 to live on, and you spend $70,000 this year, you're basically saying, God, I am not satisfied with what you have given me to live on. Do not weary yourself, Proverbs says, to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Now, let's ask this question. Point B, does Romans 13, 8 teach that debt is sin? Does it teach that debt is sin? 
The Bible says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, some Christians have taught that it is a sin to have a debt based on this verse. Owe nothing to anyone except love, so if you borrow any money, you're in sin. J. Hudson Taylor, the godly missionary to China, would never incur a debt. Now, I think I need to qualify that because J. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China and believed that he should never borrow money for the ministry. And so his was a qualified debt of sorts, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a little bit different. He was a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century. Both based their convictions on Romans 13.8, that you should never go into debt. Now, I would love to know, like, if Spurgeon ever in his earlier years had debt, and then when he got out of debt, he changed his view. I don't know. Spurgeon was a godly man, is what I'm trying to say, and yet he believed that all debt was sin. Um, interesting. I don't agree with everything Spurgeon taught. He was a five-point Calvinist, doesn't believe Christ died for all, just for the elect, just for a certain group of people. Um, he knows better now. Anyway, the context of this verse <laughs> is not addressing a prohibition against the proper use of credit, but rather emphasizing the believer's obligation to love. I think that's the point of the verse. Contextually, the only debt we are to carry is the debt to love one another, for this is a perpetual obligation we carry both before God and each other. Some take this as a command to never borrow. But Jesus obviously permitted borrowing in passages like Matthew 5.42, when he said this, give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Clearly, Jesus is not prohibiting all borrowing, and certainly, this is not the sense of what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 13.8, though once again the Scriptures do remind us of the danger of obligations in borrowing. If all debt is sinful, then God would be giving His people Israel permission to participate in moral delinquency by serving His lenders, or even in this verse that Jesus gave us. While debt may not be sin, it is frequently abused, biblically discouraged, and in many cases, it is very unwise. While the Bible does not forbid a legal financial transaction that involves interest, it does clearly forbid the charging of high interest, robbing the brethren, and failing to pay legitimate debts. The wicked borrows, the Scripture says, and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. And that text in Exodus 22, let me just turn there, Exodus chapter 22, I probably should have printed it out to save a little time. You can turn there if you want, I think you might find it interesting. Exodus 22. Verse 25, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is only a covering. 
It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about when he cries out to me, I will hear him for I am gracious. I I raise this verse because sometimes people borrow things permanently. I'm I'm just borrowing the church hymnal. Well, you've borrowed it for five years in your home. I'd like to see it back sometime. You know what I'm saying? Well, I just, I just borrowed my neighbor's tool. And you just conveniently borrow it for a long time. Christians do that sometimes. Not to mention, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 27, and in the parable of the minas, we studied the parable of the talents. We didn't study the parable of the minors. Jesus by the lessons he taught, indicated that all banking and investing for gain are not necessarily sinful. He said in both parables, you could have at least put my money in the bank and gained interest. If a Christian advocates that he believes all debt is sinful, then to be morally consistent, he should not deposit any money in any bank or savings institution because they lend money. Every once in a while, I get someone, they call me in the Bible line, or not very often, but it's come up. Do you have your money in a bank? Yes. Well, if you're morally consistent, take all your money out of the bank because that bank is loaning money to people and then you're contributing to sin if that's what you really believe. Is there more than one kind of debt? Is there more than one kind of debt? Let's ask question C here. Well, consumer debt is usually defined as money that is borrowed on items that depreciate in value or are consumed once the purchase is made. Examples of this kind of debt would be include items, consumable items, like clothes, utilities, food, furniture, appliances, car titles, tires, vacations, etc. If God promises to feed and clothe us, it seems very unwise to rely on a credit card company to accomplish this for us. If you're borrowing money on consumable items, there's something wrong. Maybe you're under the dis- discipline of God. I don't know. But more likely, with most Christians I meet, they're just modeling their financial system after the ways of the world instead of what God has revealed in Scripture. By contrast, long-term debt, sometimes called investment debt, would apply to money that is borrowed on items that hold their value, actually appreciated value, or are used as tools to produce revenue. The most common example of long-term debt, most would consider to be a home mortgage, though some would take me to task on that and say it's not an investment anymore. Well, okay, it's all right. But for most Americans, that is an investment, and it's an investment sort of debt. Okay, let's talk about the process that leads one into debt and bondage. What is the process? Most decisions that lead us into debt begin with a desire. Bottom line, it begins with a desire. And so if we are not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then very often the desire we have is for something that we often do not need. This is why it's important that we are spirit-filled Christians and we're learning God's Word because He leads in accordance with His Word. At the same time, sometimes the desire that we have is a legitimate desire, but a desire that does not need to be met at at that particular time. You say, I'd like to get a new boat. It could be a legitimate desire, but maybe this is not the time for that desire. 
And we'll talk about that and try to sort that out a little bit as we move through this section in the next couple of weeks. To be able to discern between a legitimate God-given desire and a fleshly lost, we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what Paul tells us, for though, a, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, God wants us to soak our minds so much in the Word of God, in every realm that we are to live out this Christian life, that we are able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And if we don't know what He says in a particular area, we say, God, I'm not sure what Your will is, He'll show you if you have a humble, teachable heart. Your ability to take every thought captive to Christ is largely dependent, A, on your knowledge of Scripture, and B, your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. That's why pastors are supposed to preach the Word. So much nonsense going on in the pulpits of America today, just sheer nonsense. Desires are not spiritually evaluated. The desires that are not spiritually evaluated can lead into deception. So it begins with a desire, but if that desire is not spiritually evaluated, it can lead into deception. We are deceived between the difference of what we want and what we need. And so we talk ourselves into it. I work hard. I need that new boat. I mean, it would be nice. We can take the kids out on it, have some good father-son time. Yeah, I can make the payments. It's 40 grand, but I can make the payments. Why not? And we talk ourselves into it. The second deception is that we want it now instead of waiting and saving until we can pay cash for it. We'll talk about, you know, a little bit later, you know, I would, I would make this, here's the general distinction, the distinction between a tool and a toy. A tool is something that you generate money with. You need it to do your work, to provide income for your family. A toy, you don't necessarily need. And if you're borrowing money on toys, I think I can show you before we're done in this section, you've crossed the line. Sometimes we are deceived into thinking that since we can get the credit easily, that we can pay it off easily. So you go into the car dealership, and the, the car dealer says, well, what can you afford for monthly payment? Well, just $300 a month. By the way, the average payment monthly is $500 a month to buy a new car. That's the average payment in America. Well, we, can, we can fit you into a budget. When, when I was a child... When I was in high school, the longest loan you could get on a car was three years. Now it's 10 years. A 10-year loan, I don't think the car is going to make it. I just don't. But we think, well, you know, I, I can afford it. He doesn't know whether you can afford it or not. He doesn't live in your wallet. He doesn't tithe to the Lord's work. He doesn't have a commitment to get out of debt and to pay off his mortgage sooner than later. He doesn't think the way you think. So you need to evaluate those things. See, deception is usually followed by doubt. So it begins with a desire. If it's not evaluated, it can lead into a deception. Deception is usually followed by doubt. We doubt that God could provide for our need as he promised. 
And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul gave a promise to the Philippians regarding their own financial needs. The promise is to supply all your needs, is a promise for all your need and not a promise to go beyond needs. This promise is both broad and yet restricted. It's broad, it's both broad and yet restricted. God gives according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, reminding us that since there is no lack in God's riches and glory, then we should anticipate that there would be no lack in God's supply. Of course, this promise is in conjunction with the rest of God's principles and finance. And so if our need is not met, then know that it is not God who has failed, but we have failed. This promise was made to the church in Philippi, who represented a fellowship who had surrendered their finances and material possessions to God's service and knew how to give with the right kind of heart. Paul describes them here in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is in the province of Macedonia, so it's a Macedonian church. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. This tribute was made to the churches of Macedonia, of which the Philippians were included, being in the center of God's will, obeying His truth. So that's the context of the promise. My God, for you Philippians, who are right in the center of my will, is going to supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ. Philippians 4.19 is very similar to what Jesus said in Luke 6, "'Give, and it will be given unto you.'" They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Sadly, while God's promised us to supply all our needs, we sometimes do not wait upon the Lord to watch Him supply in in His way and in His time, as we live in the center of His will, obeying His truth. we, We miss so many of God's blessings. My wife and I were newly married, about 18 months, we found out we were going to have our child, a baby. We just had a list of things. I graduated with a degree in accounting in a CPA program. I turned down a job to start in 1978 for $36,000 a year to go work for an organization that paid me $9,000 a year, and I had to raise my own funds. It was a form of madness, I suppose, my dad thought. (laughs) But nonetheless, we saw God supply our needs. And we can go through our house and say, let me tell you how God gave us this. Let me tell you how God gave me the roof of my house last year. Just ways that God is incredible. D, The desire that leads into deception and doubt results in a decision. It results in a decision. Getting into unnecessary debt often begins with a desire that is not a need, but a want that God may desire to meet, but it is not in His timing to meet it. 
that illegitimate desire leads to deception, that what we want needs to be met immediately, which then leads to doubt that God can supply in His way. So, when we begin to doubt in God's ability to provide in His timing, and that's the key, His timing, but we will see there are some principles that He will give us to discern that. This often leads to a decision that gets us into unnecessary debts. So rather than wait on God for His timing, we make the decision to spend tomorrow's income that we have not yet earned today. E, very often a bad decision to take on debt leads to delay. It leads to delay. We delay or sometimes default on our payment because we continue through this pattern going further into debt. And so we get ourselves deep into debt, and before long, we are making minimum payments or missing payments. If a person stays on this course long enough without any corrective decisions, then the height of their folly is expressed when they declare bankruptcy. The Bible is clear that as believers in Christ, we have the responsibility to keep our promises and to pay what we owe, because not to pay what we owe a person or a company or a bank is to steal. And God said in the Decalogue, Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. When we agree to borrow money from someone, we are making a vow in our heart before God to do what we have promised our neighbor. And concerning the making of a vow, God says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When you make a vow, when you make a promise to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Beyond the breaking of a vow, as noted earlier from Psalm 37, 21, when we borrow money and do not pay back what we owe, we are acting like the wicked. The wicked borrows. It does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. Christians have no business behaving in the same manner as the wicked. For a Christian in debt to get a quick fix to his problem by seeking bankruptcy when he has vowed to pay what he has agreed to pay is wrong. It may mean a change of lifestyle and a radical revision of the family budget. But keeping one's promises on money barred is a part of godly living. You know, I led a guy to Christ when I was in Texas on our street. We were in the midst of a recession in the mid-'80s in Texas. Um, It was oil and real estate related. I'll give you an example. Five houses to the right of me were empty. People just tossed their keys and walked away. There was a house next to me, and then the next three down were empty. The house across the street, brand new, never been lived in, you could move in if you passed the HUD test for $100. And I'm trying to sell my house to move here to become the pastor of Community Bible Church. And the people who wanted to buy my house were all bankrupt people. I had an assumable loan, 
But that still made me responsible for five years on an assumable loan if you let someone assume the payments. But God was big. God was gracious. God was good. But a few houses down, I led this guy to Christ right past the empty houses. And uh, Dave just took off. And he came to me one night. He said, you got a few minutes? And I said, sure. He said, I've been racking up my credit cards carefully, slowly, not real fast, because I want to declare a bankruptcy. So I've been doing it real slow so that when I appear before the judge, it won't look like, well, you just made this decision to accumulate all this debt. He said, what do you think? I said, what do you think? He said, I think it's wrong. I said, it is. So I sat down with that young guy. And three years after I got here, he wrote me a letter just saying, you know, the plan you gave me worked, and I'm out of debt, and I'm so glad I didn't declare bankruptcy. And that would have been the easy thing to do. But that's stealing. Now, I'm not saying that there's not certain kinds of creative bankruptcies that the court allows to protect you from your creditors. But bankruptcy is the wicked don't repay. This kind of bankruptcy communicates one's intention of repaying the debt. Oh, number 10. With that said, there are certain types of bankruptcy which are designed to postpone repayment rather than evade it such that the debt is not erased. And two, there are, you know, we help people sometimes, you know, who come into the office for financial counseling and, you know, they got all this credit card debt and sometimes we can negotiate with the credit card companies and they'll forgive some of the interest, but they forgave it because they want to get something rather than nothing, and they want to get their principal back. Okay, if they're willing to do that, great. But again, what we're seeing happening even amongst Christians, this kind of bankruptcy communicates one's intention of repaying the debt. It would not violate the biblical principle discussed above. I'm almost done, and then I'm going to pray. And you who have a prayer request, you take it home and pray for it. When we fail to pay our debt, it results in damage. It results in damage. When a Christian does not pay their debts, they have damaged their testimony. You know, there was a guy in our church 25 years ago. I said, what are you moving to Savannah for? I thought you loved our church. And he said, I've not paid my rent in six months, and I need a fresh start. This guy was married, had five children. I said, you're stealing from your landlord. You're just going to walk away and stiff him? That's wrong. But how many Christians have lost their testimony of those kinds of things? This is one of the reasons that it is essential for those who are in leadership to have a good reputation with those outside the church. It's a qualification to be a leader in the church. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he can't function in a limited realm, don't expand it. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. 
I've hired a lot of people over the years, and one of the questions I ask them is, according to Luke 16, 18, will you allow me to do a credit search in your life? I need your social security number. <laughs> it's very revealing. And if I do some credit search on some guy, and he's delinquent on his bills, he is not going to be considered for a job. I mean, if he can't manage his own house well, why do you want to put him into a position of leadership in the church? You don't. These characteristics must be evident to all, even for unbelievers to see. The potential leader must be a good Christian outside the walls of the church. When a Christian borrows from a church or a family member or a friend and does not keep the terms of the agreement, he has damaged his testimony. God tells us that when we even borrow a neighbor's goods and we do not return it in the same condition in which we received it, then we're acting ungodly. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, say it's an animal, while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its, if its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution if it is hired. It came for its hire. So um, I go over to your house, and I agree to cut your lawn, and you're there, and you've hired me, and I'm using your riding lawnmower, and I bust up your deck, hit a stump, didn't mean it. Sad, but, you know, I feel bad for the owner, but it happens. But if I borrow your lawnmower, hey, my lawnmower's broken, I need to bring it to my house. And I bust up your deck in my house and I return it back in rotten condition, then I have stolen from you. That's what this is saying. When we take a student loan, which you have all these hundreds of thousands of students wanting to have protest day, and we're not going to pay our loans, or sign up for a credit card, or commit to a cell provider, or sign a mortgage, but then do not follow through, we have damaged our testimony and probably our opportunity to be a vital witness for Christ. Righteous people who borrow will always pay back for the honor of Christ. Now, our Father, we pause and we thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Help us as dads to instill these principles into our children, some of us who have grandchildren who can build into their lives with this truth. And some of us are in the midst of chaos as always happens when you give me the privilege to teach this material. But thank you that your grace is sufficient, that you will meet people right where they are at, and if they will confess their sin and put themselves under your leadership and begin to obey your word and your truths, that you can redeem the worst of situations. And I thank you that I've witnessed that scores of times with people that you've let me encourage. Father, we want to pause just thanking you for a fantastic Vacation Bible School and for the 62 children who indicated decisions for Christ. Father, I think of one family who came that night to the festival of sorts, and they're unchurched, and yet they were very encouraged by the fact that their child came home and said they had become a Christian.
Father, help us in this month to follow up as best we can to invite these families to our anniversary picnic and the great evening that you've given us that's planned. And we pray especially for Graniteville and Aiken here in this next week as they have vacation Bible schools there, that you would uh, help that, just bless it, graze, put your hand over those people that will come, those children that will hear your word. Father, we thank you for those who are headed towards South Africa, to those who will be in Slovakia this summer, for those that will serve in Alaska, those that are there, those that will serve at Camp Grace with many different kinds of ministry. Unless you build the house, we labor in vain that build it. We just ask your power over it. Now help us encourage those who've cared for our children tonight. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.